0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Special guest on today's edition of Lifeline. We're visiting with senior pastor of First Baptist Church in Dallas and speaker on Pathway to Victory broadcast, bestselling author Dr. Robert Jeffress. A look at his new book, Not All Roads Lead to Heaven, sharing an exclusive Jesus in an inclusive world. I'm curious about part of this issue here, Dr. Jeffress, if where we're, we're, we're failing at this point is that we've perhaps laid a lot of our faith at the so-called altar of tolerance, this notion that, well, if God is really a loving God, surely He will accept us so long as we are sincere in our effort to reach Him, whether we call God Allah, Yahweh, or Maitreya.
2: Well, that's right. And by the way, that's one of the objections that I deal with in this book. You know, I wrote this book, Craig, so that people could reclaim this belief that Christ is the only way to heaven. And I, you know, answer seven of the major objections to that belief, the one you just raised. Well, you know, people simply call God by a different name. Or the objection, well, what about those who have never heard the name of Jesus? Isn't it unfair that God would send them to hell for rejecting a Jesus they never heard of? Or what happens to infants and small children who are too young to trust in Christ? 1 Peter 3.15 says we need to be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks us for the hope that is within us. But uh, let's take that question you just raised about, well, you know, what about tolerance, or what about people who just call God by another name? Well, you know, names mean something. Allah of the Koran is not Jehovah God of the Bible, Allah is an imaginary God. Jehovah is a real God. Allah has no sons. Jehovah has one son who died on the cross for our sins. Allah says the land of Israel belongs to the descendants of Ishmael. Jehovah God, the real Bible, says the God that Israel belongs to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are not the same gods. And I illustrated that to my congregation, Greg, uh, a few weeks ago. I was talking about David Jeremiah. I said, to my congregation, just suppose for several weeks we announced that Dr. Jeremiah was going to be the guest preacher at our church. And everybody packed in on a particular Sunday to hear David Jeremiah. But instead, I stood up and preached. And after the service, a few of you came up to me and trying to mask your disappointment, said, well, wait a minute, is Dr. Jeremiah sick today? Oh, no, not that I know what I said. Well, the bulletin says he's going to preach here. It says right here, David Jeremiah. I said, oh, well, David Jeremiah is just another name I go by sometimes. Sometimes I use David Jeremiah, sometimes Joel Olsteen, sometimes Al Sharpton, but we're all preachers, we're all the same. (laughs) That's ridiculous. Names represent something. And the Bible says in Acts 4.12, there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. 1 John 5.13 says, These things have I written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you might have eternal life.
1: Now, part of this is not only a a complete disconnect from the fundamental teachings of our faith, but perhaps some some extreme intellectual dishonesty, too. I mean, isn't this partly born out of this notion that somehow it's possible to have multiple truths all be valid simultaneously?
2: Boy. You hit the nail on the head with that. In fact, that's one of the things I talk about in Not All Roads Lead to Heaven. You know, there's what we call absolute truth, and then there's relative truth. Both are real phenomenon. There's absolute truth and relative truth. For example, if I ask you, what temperature does water freeze at? Well, the answer is 32 degrees Fahrenheit. It's not 35 degrees. It's not 16. It's 32 degrees is the freezing temperature of water. But if I were to ask you, what's a comfortable room temperature? Well, that's relative truth. For some people, it's 72. For some people, it's 68. For some people, it's 55. When it comes to the question, how can a person have a right relationship with God, the world today thinks that's a relative truth. It's a matter of whatever you think it is. But God says, no, there's an absolute answer to that question. There is only one way to me, and it's through my son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, that's not a new concept. I show in the book, I have a chapter called The Old Way Was One Way, showing how from the very beginning of the Old Testament, God always required an exclusive way to worship him.
1: I wonder if we come back full circle that this also doesn't reveal a fundamental um, inaccuracy or misunderstanding of everything from the nature of God to the nature of mankind, the notion of God's demand for sacrifice for the remission of sin, uh, and that there's a disconnect here so that all of a sudden we get (laughs) very— Well, I was going to say sloppy grace, it's almost non-existent grace, because we're trying to define the terms of engagement with God based on our terms as opposed to His terms.
2: Another great point. You know, the problem, the reason we embrace this uh, uh, inclusivism and reject exclusivity is because of two things. First of all, we think too little of God, and secondly, we think too high of ourselves. Uh, you know, we think, well, we're able to overlook sin in other people. Why can't God be as tolerant as we are? I mean, every day we overlook sin in others. We overlook sin in ourselves. But the fact that we do that is not a sign of our uh, how much we are like God. It's a sign of how much we are unlike God. You know, the word uh, holy means a cut above, separate, distinct. God is called holy. He is different than we are. He said through Habakkuk the prophet, "'Mine eyes are too pure to uh, see evil.'" God cannot tolerate evil like we are. He is holy, we're not. And we overestimate our own goodness as well. You know, we tend to judge ourselves based on other people. We find somebody who's worse than we are and say, "'Well, at least I'm not as bad as Adolf Hitler, Osama bin Laden, the drug dealer, the child molester. I must be pretty good.'" But that's not the standard God uses. You know, I remind people that the geographical distance between the North Pole and the South Pole is considerable. But it's also negligible when compared to the distance between the North Pole and the farthest star in the universe. It's the same way with us. The difference between human beings seems to be a great deal. You know, the difference between Hitler and Walt Disney seems to be a lot of difference in in morality. But in God's eyes, the difference between Walt Disney and Adolf Hitler is negligible compared to the difference between Walt Disney and you and me and God, who is absolutely perfect. And only Jesus Christ can bridge that gap between God and man. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short. We all must make a payment for our sins or allow God to make that payment for us
1: so fundamental misunderstanding of not only the character of God but who we are in relationship to God's character and then at the other extreme and that is perhaps a fundamental denial of Satan and his efforts at not only watering down the gospel but the outright perversion of that message
2: well that's right and uh, you know the bible says to avoid the way of Cain in jude verse 11 the way of Cain describes Cain's uh, the decision that he would try to approach God on his own terms rather than God's terms. And every other world religion, Craig, is really a, a deviation or a derivation of the way of Cain, man's attempt to approach God in his own way. And, uh, you know, 2 Corinthians 11 says that Satan appears as an angel of light to deceive people. And other religions are really tools of Satan to lead people away from God. You know, when he says an angel of light, he appears sometimes as. Isn't it interesting that Muhammad uh, claims that he received an angelic revelation of Islam, and that Joseph Smith uh, claims that an angel delivered to him the teaching of Mormonism? I have no doubt an angel appeared to both men, but it wasn't an angel from God. And uh, Paul goes on to say in 2 Corinthians 11, we should not be surprised that Satan's servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Many world religions, uh, many uh, groups, uh, I mean, they, they sound good, they look good, they sound like they're teaching great moral principles but they are leading people away from the only way to God, which is faith in Christ
1: alone. Well, and at the core, too, not only is it the sense of, you know, all roads lead to heaven, biblically ignorant, it shows that we're, we're theologically dishonest here. You make a beautiful illustration inside of your book, Not All Roads Lead to Heaven, this idea that somehow I can get on any highway and wind up at First Baptist Church in Dallas. Now, I guarantee you, if I took off here and got on 101 here in the San Francisco Bay Area, it could lead me to San Diego and eventually to Mexico, and I could make my way all the way up through the Oregon coast and eventually wind up in Canada. But no matter what direction I go on Highway 101, here's what I can guarantee you. It will not lead me to First Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas.
2: That's right. And you know, let's say, let's keep that analogy. Let's say that that, that in fact all roads do lead to heaven. Well, that means Christianity is wrong. Uh, If if Jesus is wrong about this, then you put your faith in the wrong person. Christianity is not the way to heaven if Jesus was wrong about this. But then here's the question. Which of the other thousands of ways to God do you choose? Uh, and, and, And what really confuses the matter is most all of other religions claim to be exclusive as well. So, I mean, you're left with not knowing how to get there if Christianity is wrong. And the fact is... I mean, all different religions are not different roads that lead up the same mountain of truth. Jesus said there's only one way to him.
1: Our guest today, Dr. Robert Jeffress, a look at his new book, Not All Roads Lead to Heaven. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of the conversation as Lifeline continues.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Best-selling author Dr. Robert Jeffress, a look at his new book, Not All Roads Lead to Heaven, sharing an exclusive Jesus in an inclusive world. By the way, the new book recently published by Baker Books, available at Christian bookstores throughout the Bay Area. You can also order it through Dr. Jeffress's website associated with the broadcast Pathway to Victory. Simply go to ptv.org. That's ptv. Dot O-R-G. In your book, Dr. Jefferson, you walk through four, I think, very fundamental and yet critical definitions that I think will help the average reader better understand um, not only the slippery slope that, that leads to some of this very sloppy and dangerous theology, but also the importance of, of defining the differences between some of these fundamental worldviews. Walk us through, if you would, brief- briefly some definitions on universalism, Pluralism, inclusivism, and exclusivism.
2: Well, I don't want to get lost in the (laughs) theological weeds in the few minutes that we have, but let me just basically say you know, universalism is the belief that uh, everybody is going to heaven regardless of what they believe or don't believe. Pluralism kind of limits it to what needs to be religious people, but it really doesn't matter uh, what uh, religious people, uh, what religion it is, that people are saved by the death of Jesus Christ, whether they know his name or not. And that's the point that I want to make, because one of the key questions, Craig, is, well, what about those who have never heard about Jesus? The pluralists would say that's really no problem, that they are welcomed into heaven anyway. And yet, that's not what the Bible teaches. You cannot find one example in the New Testament of anyone uh, being saved apart from a personal faith in Jesus. Of course, the objection is, well, what about those who have never heard? Isn't it patently unfair for God to send people to hell who've never heard about Jesus? And here's the answer I give in the chapter devoted to this. Romans 1 says, everyone, by looking at creation, can know that there is a God. And although an acceptance of the, re, of the existence of God is not enough to save a person, it is enough if rejected to condemn a person. You know, we used to talk about the heathen in Africa, as if all the heathen congregated in Africa. I'm not sure that's why that was. But let's, let's talk about a 12-year-old girl who lives in Syria. She's never heard about Jesus, never seen a Bible. How is she saved? Well, she can look into the heavens and know she didn't create this world that can't save her, but if she responds to the light God gives her, I think the Bible is clear that God will send to that girl the light she needs to trust in Jesus as her Savior. I mean, he did that for the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8. Here was a guy who wanted to know God. He's in a chariot reading Isaiah, can't make heads or tails of it. God miraculously sends uh, the evangelist Philip with the message of the gospel. Or think about the Roman centurion, Cornelius, Acts chapter 10. He was a lover of God, prayed regularly, gave his money to the poor. By most people's standards, that should be enough to go to heaven, but not by God's standard. He needed to hear Jesus, and so God miraculously sends Peter to preach to him the gospel. What I'm saying is, whenever God sees a heart that really wants to know him, you can know for sure that God is going to get the information about Jesus That person needs to be saved. And
1: certainly if God is capable of sending his only son to be born of a virgin, to suffer, die, rise again on the third day, if God is capable of doing all of that, he is certainly capable of individually revealing himself to persons who are perhaps beyond the reach of the church or not having uh, ever been exposed to the gospel in the fashion and form in which we would understand it.
2: Well, that's right, and I don't think it's any accident that missionaries go where they go. I don't think it's any accident that the radio signals and television signals and the Internet literally reach around the world sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ.
1: What do we make of some of these individuals? And there are big names that come to mind, including the one big one that's down in your home state that (laughs) would look seriously at the television screen and say, well, now when it comes to this matter of uh, does this mean that someone, for example, who is um, Jewish, is necessarily going to hell? How do we deal with this exclusivity, the notion that salvation is limited to those who exercise faith in Christ and Christ alone? And of course, we've heard these answers. You articulate one in the book that's sort of this, well, I'm not sure, don't know, not up to me to judge. How do we give an answer for that from a biblical perspective?
2: Well, and we've all seen people wilt under the television lights and basically, you know, break out in a sweat, stutter and stammer and basically say I don't know, I don't know, we have to leave that up to God. Well, the problem with that is God has already made his judgment about that, and he's articulated it in the scripture and we need to be bold and compassionate and share that message with other people as well to save them from hell. You know, when people uh accuse me of being anti-Semitic. I've been accused of that because I insist that Jews like everybody else must trust in Christ to be saved. That's not anti-Semitic. Jesus is the one who said it. Last time I checked, he was a Jew. The Apostle Peter was a Jew who said it. Acts 4.12, there is no salvation except by the name of Jesus. The Apostle Paul was the Hebrew of the Hebrews, the Jew of the Jews, and yet he gave his entire life to preaching that there is no salvation apart from the name of Jesus. So when you have the three most prominent Jews of the New Testament saying you have to believe in Jesus, well, I mean, I think that speaks for itself.
1: Early on in the book, you talk about this notion that uh, part of this slippery slope has been the fact that largely we as evangelical Christians on this very topic have been out-marketed, out-maneuvered. Out fought and out argued. How do we come back full circle? How do we redeem this to bring it back back to this fundamental teaching that narrow, as the Scripture tells us, narrow is the gate.
2: Well, you know, the fact is, I, I think the fact that fifty seven percent of evangelicals believe there's more than one way to God. I mean, really, is a reflection on what's being taught and not being taught in the pulpits today. I mean, as I you mentioned, several major pastors who are waffling on this issue. My old professor at Dallas Seminary, Howard Hendricks, used to say, whatever is a mist in the pulpit becomes a fog in the pew. And I think a lot of people in the pew are, few, a pew are foggy about this issue because they're not hearing it taught from pastors who want to be loving and kind and don't want to run anybody off and so forth, and they are neglecting their role to be prophets and evangelists teaching the Word of God. And, Craig, let me just say in the closing moments, that's why I wrote, Not All Roads Lead to Heaven, to equip Christians to reclaim this truth, and I encourage Christians to get it and read it for themselves. But also, be ready to share that answer. You know, most people, if their child or grandchild asked them, well, do you believe a, a, a Muslim is going to hell? How could you say that? They wouldn't know what to say. Or if they were asked, well, what about children and infants who are too young to trust in Christ? They couldn't give any reason why they believe they're in heaven. All of those things I cover in my book. And as we enter this Easter season especially, as people are more open to Jesus, maybe some of our listeners know people who follow other faiths. They've never known how to approach them without offending them. Here's a great idea. Get a copy of Not All Roads Lead to Heaven and just give it to them as a gift, saying, I'd like to share with you why my faith is so important to me. I'll guarantee you this title, Not All Roads Lead to Heaven, will grab their attention immediately, and it may be a great conversation
1: starter. Are we as the church, as we kind of conclude our conversation together, Dr. Jeffress, are we as, it, as the church at, at a very critical Crossroads, because it, it, it occurs to me that this is a this is as as they say sometimes the deal breaker. Yeah. Uh, that that if we as the church do not fundamentally understand, if we're not capable of of giving an answer for the hope that lies within, as Scripture exhorts us, if we do not understand the necessity of atonement, or if we somehow. Uh, Recoil against this notion of, of spilt blood, atonement for sin, uh, appeasement, uh, propitiation, things of this sort. If 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 we find all of that very uncomfortable, and we are therefore not able to effectively communicate the faith that we supposedly live and believe in, it would seem to me that 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 absent that, that the church becomes horrifically neutered.
2: It does. And look, you know, you made an allusion to this. We lost the gay marriage battle because we were outfought, fought and out-marketed on the issue. And you know, marriage is a very important issue, but it pales in comparison to this issue. This issue is the foundation of the Christian faith. How can a person be reconciled with God? And if we allow ourselves to be outfought, outfought, and outmarketed on this. Really, we need to shut the doors of our church and uh, keep our money for ourselves. Forget about evangelism and missions. We don't have a message to share with anyone if everyone's going to be in heaven
1: anyway. A sobering message that comes from the very heart of God himself. Don't believe me? Read the scripture. And you can work through a better understanding of this topic, not only for yourself, but in sharing your faith with others, as Dr. Robert Jeffress so aptly points out. The book, Not All Roads Lead to Heaven, Sharing an Exclusive Jesus in an Inclusive World. Newly published, as we mentioned earlier, by Baker Books. You'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as ordering it online through the Pathway to Victory website at ptv.org. That's ptv. And our thanks, as always, to Dr. Robert Jeffress, Senior Pastor at First Baptist Church of Dallas and speaker on Pathway to Victory.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: It is... Perhaps just a generation or so ago that we argued in apologetics debates particularly that God said, hath God said, well today the debate is simply that God, meaning does he even exist? Nietzsche asserted a century ago that God was dead, suggesting at least at the minimum that at one time God did exist, but today we debate his very existence, ever A new book helps you address a lot of these questions, perhaps questions you yourself have struggled with, certainly questions that maybe you struggle with in answering for uh, friends as you share your faith. The book is called simply Does God Exist? and 51 Other Compelling Questions About God and the Bible. Its author is a lead pastor from Life Fellowship Church outside of Charlotte, North Carolina, and the founder and host of the video ministry, the One Minute Apologist, Pastor Bobby Conway. Pastor Conway, great to have you on the program.
3: Hey, it's good to be with
1: you, buddy. Well, I guess these days, particularly with what we see going on in the world around us, whether we talk about politics or the spate of violence in particular, and a lot of it taking place in God's name or in Allah's name, and a lot of people get confused between the two, a lot of Christians really struggle to try to come up with these answers that will help satisfy uh, friends as they or co-workers as they share their faith. And in looking at your new book, I mean, it certainly isn't a 500-page tome, uh, you could almost practically memorize the entire book, and toward that degree, I just wonder if that was your intent.
3: Well, what I did want to do is help uh, my readers to gain some confidence around curious questions that they may have, or people whom they're engaging conversations with might have. And so what I did, basically, is I've got almost a thousand videos on our One Minute Apologist YouTube uh, ministry site where I interview world leading philosophers and apologists, and then I do a lot of the questions myself and I just sought to take you know fifty or so of those type of questions that I do in video format and then put them in written format, so I wrote that book to give people a tool of some of the questions that people are asking today.
1: And what I like about the book, Pastor, is it is literally a book that you could memorize. I mean, you you could almost spend a few minutes with this every day and committed a lot of the answers uh, to memory. There's some give and take in here, questions to consider, uh, memory verses that uh, that tie into uh, each of the questions, along with uh, information concerning the links to the accompanied YouTube videos that you've produced, that I think really can help equip Christians for, as, as Paul told us, to be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within.
3: Yes, and I also think that people want information, especially in this age, that is digestible, and I think that there is a place for uh, the tome, and I'm all about that. I read those myself. I think that it's good, though, for people to have a tool, and being a pastor, I have to be a pragmatician, uh, and I think that this is something that can serve as a tool whereby people can get together in small groups or in coffee shops, uh, or they can just have it as a resource manual to look up questions either about theology or worldview or sexual issues or some of the different things that we're facing right before us right now.
1: One of the things that I like about your approach to this, when I first picked up the book, I thought, well, we're going to expect to find some basic questions in there, sort of the questions of time and memoriam, does God exist? What about the virgin birth? Uh, uh, Is Jesus equal to to God? Things of this sort that are kind of basic Christian theology. But you have not shied away from dealing with any of the contemporary questions, so to speak, of our day either. For example, I, I first read it and thought, did I read that right? Will there be Sex in heaven? Uh, you you don't shy away shy away from any of these topics, do you? Well, I mean, the
3: reality is is people have these questions, and I think in the church we need to say, "Hey, look, if we're sincerely striving to learn, it's okay to ask questions." Uh, and will there be sex in question? I mean, that's not uh, out of reason to ask that kind of question. Uh, will I still be married in question uh, in heaven? I mean, these are questions that that people thought about. In fact, that Jesus was uh, posed such a question, and we learn that, you know what, we're going to be, uh, you know, like the angels in heaven, neither given in marriage. So there's going to be a marriage on earth till death do us part, so there's not going to be sex in heaven, but I think that that's not anything for us to dread. It's hard to imagine, as adults, a world where there cannot be intimacy uh, between a person that we love, but we can know in heaven that the purpose of sex here on earth is for mutual pleasure and procreation, and our ultimate pleasure will be found in God, and there will be no procreative reason for us to have sex in heaven.
1: What's good, too, I think, about your approach to the book, Pastor, is that in addition to helping tackle questions that uh, we could run into day by day as we share our faith with others, there are also some very timely topics that, quite frankly, a lot of Christians struggle with themselves. They don't quite understand the answers, and we live in a society that not only promotes this sense of, of certainly... uh, Uh, theological pluralism, but also from the standpoint of wanting to be quote-unquote tolerant, uh, and yet we say, gee, how how do I come about giving an articulate response to some of the more controversial topics. I mean, take, for example, the matter of marijuana use. Now, here in California, we're going to head to the ballot in November, not only decide who the next president will be, U.S. senator from California, but also decide whether or not we should follow in the footsteps of Colorado and legalize recreational use of marijuana. This is one of the topics that you've chosen to deal with.
3: Uh I discern between medical marijuana and uh, recreational use of marijuana. I grew up in California myself, and I've been clean since October 9, 1994. I got clean at my first semester at Chico State, of all places. And uh, I don't know if it's still the party school it was back in the in the 90s. but It has a reputation.
1: There, yes, it does.
3: <laughs> <laughs> so I thought quite the place to go and get sober. I went to an AA meeting October ninth, 1994 and I've been clean ever since, and so I smoked a lot of dope myself in California, so I'm not throwing uh, stones at those who, uh, who do, but I will say that I know back then a good hit of some green butt could get a high going, and with the THC levels where they are today, I just don't see how we can uh, maintain, uh, you know, temple care. The Bible talks about, you know, we're to honor our bodies, we're to take care of our temple, it kills brain cells. I think from a standpoint of medical use, I can see a real avenue for that. Suppose we were to wake up and read in a newspaper, and we'd never heard about marijuana before, and we didn't have the negative connotations, and we saw scientists have found a leaf that can help those with cancer patients who are cancer patients to digest their food, to help them to gain weight, and to assuage them in the midst of their pain. I don't think we'd think anything of it, because people use uh, many medications that are far worse right now than marijuana. So, I can say I could see it being okay there, but just recreationally, I think that it's hard to make that case.
1: If you've just joined our conversation, visiting tonight with the lead pastor from Life Fellowship Church outside of Charlotte, North Carolina, the author of the new book called Does God Exist? This and 51 other compelling questions about God and the Bible. It is bite sized, which is what I like about this. A lot of people get put off. Questions arise, they don't know how to answer them, and they're too intimidated to uh, go out and buy a 500-page tome on the topic. And so as a result, they just sort of maintain their sense of ignorance. But it's hard to be effective when it comes to witnessing today and not be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within, as Paul said. Not be uh, prepared to engage in, in thoughtful reasoned give and take and to be able to take a stand and most importantly not only be educated and equipped ourselves but then share that knowledge with others as we share our faith and that's a long way toward what this book uh is is focused on doing newly published by harvest house by the way we'll take a brief time out come back to more of the conversation deal with a few other hot topics of the day as our visit with pastor bobby conway author of does god exist continues here on life
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Helping you answer the big questions of the day, uh, perhaps for yourself, certainly for others as you share your faith, having a sense of uh, uh, solid discipleship where we are learned a bit, uh, we are trained, so to speak, within the basics of apologetics is is kind of uh, unfortunately passing away, meaning that fewer and fewer churches um, underscore the importance of this, and yet I think really to be an effective witness in sharing our faith and also have a good sense of grounding in our own relationship with Christ, it's important that we have some of these fundamental answers, a fundamental understanding of our faith. And uh, the new book, Does God Exist?, and 51 other compelling questions about God and the Bible goes a long way toward, in a very direct fashion, answer many of those questions. Its author is our guest today, Bobby Conway. He is also the lead pastor of Life Fellowship Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. He's also authored other books and uh, is the uh, founder and host, by the way, of the rapidly growing video ministry, The One Minute Apologist. Which is, I guess, Bobby, if you just do a, um, a search in YouTube, all the, the link will come up.
3: Absolutely, yeah. Just type in "One Minute Apologist." We have a channel in YouTube, or they can go to the One Minute Apologist dot com, and they can learn more about the videos there.
1: And this is really, I mean, I, I think of not just. Uh, New believers, but a good refresher, of course, for some of us that have been in faith for a lot of years, as well as an opportunity to get studied with a biblical perspective on some of the so-called hot topics of the day, which I know a lot of believers struggle with. I mean, for example, this issue of uh, transvestitism or sex change. Uh, has been a lot in the news lately, particularly with uh, uh, Bruce Jenner capturing a lot of headlines. And I know that when the topic comes up, other than uh, sharing a sense of uh, disbelief or uh, uh, frustration with the topic, many, many Christians, I think, are just frustrated. They don't know how to answer, they don't know how to respond to when this debate or this topic is approached.
3: It's too bad that uh, the church has a reputation. Uh, for being bombastic at times. By and large, uh, the Christians that I come in contact are wonderful people, uh, humble people, but a lot of times they're not ready to engage in conversation uh, with people. Those who would say apologetics uh, isn't important uh, obviously uh, haven't been out sharing uh, with non-believers or engaging them with questions about their faith, because those questions will come up, and in, in particular this one on sex change Uh, This is a huge issue in our culture right now. And I do think that we should be looking for ways to exhibit compassion. I mean, I can't imagine what it would be like to feel trapped uh, with another gender inside of my body. Uh, At the same token, I think we can show a compassion. You know, I can't, you know, imagine what that would be like. I'm not trying to throw stones at you here. I'm just trying to be faithful to the way that I believe that God created us, and I believe that uh, the chromosomal structure cannot be changed through a uh, sex change. Uh, our chromosomal structure reveals whether we're male or female. Now, there is an intersex condition that some would have, where maybe they might have some, you know, partial male and partial female body parts, and I can understand the situation like that, where they might seek counsel and get some wisdom on how to be unified so they don't so that individual doesn't feel like they're half male, half female. That makes sense. But I do think biblically we should realize that uh, sex is not something that we can just uh, play with. It's des- We're designed by God with a certain gender.
1: The other thing that I think believers should appreciate from a book like this is not only equipping them in terms of a a better, more articulate, uh, apologetic approach to many of the hot topics of the day from a biblical perspective, but also some of the topics that kind of swirl within the church that oftentimes uh, we need to gain a deeper, more foundational understanding on. Uh, It is probably... Unlikely, for the most part, that the average non-believer is going to want to engage you in questions about the Trinity. But we know that uh, modalism or uh, Trinitarianism within the Church, it, it are there are corners where this is hotly contested and debated, and from time to time, I think at least from a good biblical foundation, from a discipleship standpoint, it's important that believers understand what the Bible actually has to say on topics that are very relevant to the Christian's faith, particularly in issues such as the Trinity.
3: Sure, that's a good point, Craig, where we see that God is one in essence and three in person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I think that there's a lot of confusion today, and I think that in my last book I wrote called Doubting Toward Faith, I wrestled with some of my own doubts and wrote about some of my own struggle with it and shared how, you know, we're living in a melting pot culture of belief. We're like a nation without a mission statement. We're not what we once were. We're not sure what we're becoming. But in between, in this tweener space, it's great. And there's lots of questions, and we're experiencing what Jennifer Heck talked about, this idea of cosmopolitan doubts, where my belief's bumping up against somebody else's belief, and we're wondering, how can I know what I believe is really true? And I think that we need to help people to deal with these questions and with their doubts, and a lot of people are intimidated to share their doubts, because they're going to feel like they're an immature believer if they do. And I want to say, as a pastor and as an apologist, that in the absentee of certainty there's always going to be room for doubt. The question is, which worldview closes the doubt gap the best? And me, as a Christian pastor, I can struggle with doubts, but I believe when I look at the case for the resurrection of Jesus, and when I think about our worldview compared to other worldview options, I believe Christianity is uh, the greatest worldview standing and offers the greatest amount of evidence for us.
1: Do we also have to uh, concede that there are some topics for which there's just not real clear direction within Scripture, uh, that sort of uh, now we see uh, through a glass-darkly approach that, you know, there are certain mysteries, so to speak, that we do not fully comprehend and give believers a sense of relief that that's okay? I think so. I think it makes uh, us—look,
3: if somebody gets discipled, they're a brand new Christian, and then they go, "Okay, I've been discipled. I've had my five hours of training." Uh, they're often ultra dogmatic. They go out and they feel like they've they've read their left behind series and they know how God's going to wrap the world up. And <laughs> look, the reality is is. If we're going to go in and out of some of these doctrinal positions on age of the earth, or the timing of Jesus' return, or which translation to use, or whether or not one's of the Calvinists on any I think we need to give people some real freedom to think, because sometimes we can give people such a tight doctrinal list that then if they're just thinking because they read another book, not trying to disobey God, just wrestling with the argument, They can feel like they're doing something wrong, and the reality is is they're just thinking. And I think that's when we get back to we need to love God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, love our neighbors, ourselves. As Christians, our faith is in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're keeping our faith there, and then we live it a lot of flexibility, and we give each other a lot of grace because we're splintering the Church to death in the name of our pet particularities, and I think we need to loosen up a little bit.
1: And I think that's a key point that you make, because there's also this perspective that says, listen, um, there are some... Doctrines, so to speak, that are going to constantly be open for debate. I mean, you know, upon baptism, should we sprinkle or should we dunk? I don't know. I mean, I, I think there's evidence to show, certainly from Christ's experience with it, that uh, the dunking is the way to go. That said, it certainly doesn't classify as a damnable doctrine, meaning that if you don't embrace it or believe it certain ways, uh, that, that you're going to be outside the confines of of, of, of so-called normative or or. Um, historical Christianity. But there's also this notion that we can sometimes get so caught up in the minutiae of some of these completely unwinnable debates that we we end up seeing our relationship with very Christ himself suffer, don't we? I just would
3: love to see the church at large really grasp what you're saying right there, because if we could just get the beauty and the joy of learning. Yes, there's a corpus of theology that we're to believe, but the reality is, is we've got over 40,000 denominations. Uh, You know, uh, you can pit many of these great theologians that are our heroes, and they contradict each other on some of these viewpoints as well. That doesn't mean that undercuts our belief ultimately in the authority of Scripture. What it means is people are finite. And yes, there's one interpretation from God's perspective, but as humans... I believe, myself included, none of us walk around as perfect interpreters of Scripture. So that should create some humility in us that, you know what, we're going to do our best to show ourselves as workmen who are approved of studying the Word of God, but we're going to be humble with the way that we handle that with others as well.
1: And in doing so, of course, being uh, prepared to give the answer uh, to not only deepen your own relationship with Christ and understanding of your own faith, but then to be more effective communicator at discipling believers that you won to Christ and certainly hope that's part of uh, your, your life experience. And then, too, to be prepared to share your faith with others. This book goes a long way in a very easy fashion. It answers the question, does God exist? That and 51 other compelling questions about God, the Bible, and quite frankly, life in general, wrestling with a lot of the questions, contemporary ones, that we struggle with to this very day. Bobby Conway is the author of the new book, lead pastor of Life Fellowship Church, located just outside of Charlotte, North Carolina, graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary, great job on the book, newly published, by the way, by our friends at Harvest House and available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through some of the usual suspects, Amazon.com. You can also get it through Pastor Conway's website, Bobby Conway, spell it just the way it sounds, bobbyconwayonline.com. That's bobbyconwayonline.com, and, you know, if you're looking for some quick, easy to nibble on and digest uh, and memorize content, not only the book, but also uh, we mentioned about his YouTube channel uh, that provides. What did you say, Bobby? Over a thousand videos. Well, we're working close to a thousand. We've got about nine
3: hundred right now, so almost a thousand different videos.
1: And these are all called the One Minute Apologist, that deals with just short, bite-sized chunks. Of information on a whole variety of topics that that very much mimic uh, what the book does. So you can check that out on YouTube by simply uh, doing a a Google search. Go to YouTube and look for the One Minute Apologist. Again, the book, Does God Exist?, and 51 other compelling questions about God and the Bible, newly published by Harvest House. Our thanks to Pastor Bobby Conway for being with us tonight here on this edition of Lifeline.